I'm Simon Russell from Behavioural Finance Australia, and today I'm joined by Craig Sankey from IFS. Welcome, Craig. G'day, Simon. Hope you're well. Yes, very good. Thank you. So today's conversation is about risk profiling. Uh, why risk profiling? Well, clearly it's a very important part of uh, an investment advice process and advice process around superannuation investment choice in particular. Um, but it's not without controversy. So uh, what are the right, what's the right tools that we should be using when we're, when we're uh, profiling clients? If we drill into it, which qu questions should we ask? What words should we use in those questions? How should we frame choices? How can we interpret responses from clients? How do we combine all this stuff into a risk profile? So particularly if there's inconsistent responses. And then once we've got a risk profile, what do we then do with it? How do we reconcile it with the client's objectives? And in all of this sort of stuff, what's the role of the advisor? So is the advisor there to educate and, and help the client through the process? But does this perhaps bring in some subjectivity into the process as well? Uh, now, why it's particularly pertinent for Craig, and, and uh, hopefully we can explore this in the conversation, is that IFS has just been through a process where they've explored a lot of these sort of issues of going through looking at your existing I, uh, IFS's existing risk profiling tool and encountering a lot of these sorts of issues. So over the next hour or so, I'm going to ask Craig, uh, uh, I guess, to reflect on some of those experiences across that journey uh, and sort of, I guess, give, share with us some of the insights and where they, where they landed. So hopefully this conversation is useful for people who are involved in, in financial advice, who perhaps use or design risk profiling tools, particularly those people involved in, uh, in the large superannuation funds and the sort of the uh, investment choices that they're helping members make there. Now, of course, we're not excluding anyone from watching this, this video or listening to the podcast version, but if you are an individual investor, uh, please be aware that the conversation here is general in nature. We haven't considered your individual financial circumstances or needs. So this is not intended to be personal financial advice. Uh, but with all that said, perhaps, Craig, if you don't mind kicking us off with perhaps just a quick blurb about IFS and, and your role there, if you don't mind. Yeah, thanks for all that, Simon. So uh, we're industry fund services. So we're owned by a group of industry super funds or, or profit to member funds, and we provide licensee services to a number of those funds. So some of our owners are our clients and some of our clients are our owners, but there are there are differences there. Not all of our uh, clients are our owners. So uh, predominantly what we do is we license financial advisors. We license around 125 financial advisors at the moment, and we also provide licensee services um, to other funds that may or may not use us for, for licensing. So power planning, uh, compliance, audits, um, CPD training, all that type of thing. So that's predominantly what we do on our side of the business, but IFS also has a an unpaid super arm as well. So that's the, the second part of the business. My role here at IFS is I look after the, the training, the, so the CPD training of the advisors. Also look after the, the rule set, the guidance, the processes that the advisors have to follow when providing advice under our licence, um, as well as the advice governance side of things. And I get involved in a number of different projects, uh, risk profiling's one and digital advice, which I think we're going to touch on as well, would be another one of the projects that we're looking after. Fantastic. So if we jump straight into the, the risk profiling side, perhaps you can take us back to day one and tell us what, what's the sort of the the existing process that you've you, you take advisors through. What sort of questions, what, what experiences mm -hmm. you had with that? Yes. So we've well, firstly we've got we've got uh, six outcomes or six risk profiles that that uh, clients get put into. Um, and a number of years ago now, well over ten years ago, we we hired a, an investment consulting firm to to work out what those N six risk profiles should be. So we, we kind of map them to risk measure bands, which a lot of super funds would be familiar with. So a client might yeah, all their investment options for super funds have to be labeled. Label one, two, three, four, five, or six, and low risk, medium risk, low to medium, medium to high. So our, our six risk profiles match the six the first six risk bands of the um, of those risk lists risk labels. So hopefully we've got some consistency. doesn't matter which super fund you're being put into, you're going to walk away with a very similar outcome. So that I think uh, that's held up really well um, and we were comfortable with that. So there was no need to change the end, the end result. It was how do we make sure we're getting someone into the right result in the first place. So uh, our approach is probably very similar to what most uh, financial advisors do currently. We've got a a risk profile set that's eight questions. Uh, each question uh, gets a score, and then at the end of those 
eight questions, you add up the score and you, uh, depending on what, what number it is, you get placed into one of those six outcomes. So that was our, that has been our current approach for a long, long time and probably the approach from what I see for most other licensees. Yeah. Can you give us a sense of some of those, the questions, what sort of things would be asking clients? They'll be asking things about how comfortable they are with risk, uh, their investment time frame, what kind of return um, they're looking to achieve. Um, how you know would they panic if they had a ten percent negative return? That type of thing. Yeah. Okay. And, and um, we'll get into the data analytics. I know you've done some um, some great sort of work on the data side, but but what anecdotally, what sort of feedback have you got from advisors who have used the tool, or possibly from clients who have come through that process? So I think the, the, the wording of the questions is always a little bit subjective. Um, and um, what we've found is some of the advisors have kind of put their own spin on it and asking it in a certain way or framing the questions in a certain way. And from the client's point of view, it's a bit of a black box. So um, you go through these eight questions and then ta-da, here's your score and this means X. Um, and you could have been answering questions a little bit inconsistently in terms yeah. of, I want a great return, I don't want any risk. And then you might end up somewhere in the middle, which might not be appropriate. So it's um, it could be a little bit of a surprise by the time they get to the end and they, uh, they're they given, well, this is your risk profile, how do you feel about that? Quite often, um, because they haven't been taken along the journey about this is where you're going to be ending up, um, there's still a little bit of confusion there. Yeah, okay. And perhaps we can touch on the data analytics. So anecdotes, I guess, are one thing, but the data mm -hmm. tells you a story that might be different from the anecdotes. And I know you've looked, looked at quite a bit of the data that's come from the advisors. What did you find from that analysis? Yeah, so we, we, we do give a lot of advice because super funds um, see a lot of members. They've got a lot of members and they have to give a lot of advice. So we've got, we give three or 4,000 pieces of personal advice a year and the vast majority of those uh, um, also include some kind of investment choice advice. So um, so when we looked into the data, we, we had a look at uh, where our clients ended up in out of the six risk profiles. And when you look at it at a, at a big picture, um, it kind of made sense. There's a lot of clumping in the middle. A lot of the, a lot of the clients ended up in the middle kind of risk profiles. Um, nothing really stood out. Uh, maybe some of our older clients came out a little bit more conservative and the younger clients came out a little bit more aggressive. Again, Probably nothing, um, nothing unusual or surprising, and probably all good. It was just when we drilled down into the individual advisors' levels that we found some anomalies of how some advisors' clients tended to end up in the same risk profile, which um, just kind of begged the question: were, were those advisors explaining concepts, themes, and, and framing questions in a certain way? Yeah, and do you have some examples that you can share with us from your data analytics? Yes, yeah. Let me bring up. Uh, let me bring up some a couple of slides. Yep. So this is basically at IFS. We've got a, a couple of different uh, advisor levels. Well, um, one of them we call comprehensive, which basically means that they've got a wide variety of what they can provide advice over. Um, so we wanted to compare apples with apples as much as possible. So, so these advisors roughly see the same types of clients is, is really what I'm getting at. So we're not, we're not uh, choosing different levels of advisors that are, see, choosing, that are seeing different kinds of clients. So as I said, we've got six risk profiles, but in this first example, what we're looking at is risk profile three versus risk profile four. So on the left-hand side, what percentage of clients was put into risk profile three? Now, our average across the whole licensee for these types of advisors is around 46%. Whereas uh, in this example, advisor A, 83% of their clients, so more than eight and 10, were put into the one risk profile, um, which we found quite uh, surprising that so many clients would, would end up in the one risk profile. Mm. Compared that to advisor C, uh, they had over seven out of 10 going into risk profile four, so the next one up the spectrum. So it's a, it's a as you can see, quite a huge difference, 83% for risk profile three and an advisor C only had 13%, whereas advisor C's kind of doubled the average uh, for risk profile four. So something something was going on there. As I said, they're seeing roughly the same kind of client. They're roughly the same age. And this is over hundreds and hundreds of examples. This is not advisors that have seen five clients. They've, they, they see a lot of clients. Um, year on year. 
And do you have a theory then, about what's going on there? I, I, mean, I think it is the way that they're asking the question and, and framing the question and explaining the question because our current risk profile set does rely on the advisor explaining concepts and educating the clients along the way. We've, we've got some guidance that um, helps the advisors um, explain what, our, what, what we're trying to mean by each of our questions, but there's no doubt that the advisors explain it in their own way. Uh, and I'm assuming they explain things very similar to each client that they see. So uh, uh, we, we, we suspect that the, uh, these advisors are, are explaining these concepts and maybe it's only slightly different ways, but they're definitely in influencing the client and their results. Um, and look, most advisors uh, do, do agree that they can, they can and, and sometimes do influence the clients in their, uh, in their scoring of their risk profile. Yeah, I might just relay a couple of sort of concepts from, I guess, from the psychology uh, literature that um, that this uh, this sort of result sort of triggers for me. So see what you think and how relevant you think these are. But one, mm -hmm. I guess, is that we're looking at adjacent risk profiles here. And from what you've described, you've got a series of questions that leads a client to being in category three, risk profile three, or slightly different answers possibly that end up in, in category four. But the, those clients, I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, don't get to the point of at the end going, well, I'm in three, but let me ca let me compare myself or compare what does four look like? All those all those advisor A clients, 83% in, in category three, did they get a choice to go, well, you know what, you could have got a slightly higher return over here, but for a slightly higher risk, would you have, does that actually sound more appropriate for you and your needs? So that, that's not part of the current process, is it? No, not really. I think it's it's this is where you ended up with. Here's a summary of that. Does that sound okay with you? It's almost uh, you know when when they and when when the advisor says, does that say, sound okay with you? There, mm. it's almost leading them to say, well, everything appears okay. This is what your result in it, and they're kind of giving it a an endorsement also, almost to say, yeah, well, this is what you score and this is what you ended up with, and this all sounds good to me. <laughs> Any problems? Yeah. Yeah, but it, it doesn't have the, um, the 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 aspect of of comparison. So, so I guess no. we know that. I mean, it's not always the case, but often the case that if you give people a point of comparison and say, "Well, how does this one compare with this one?" and lay it mm -hmm. out in front of them with the a bit like when you're buying an airline ticket. Here, here's the one with no frills. It's cheap. You don't get any leg room, and you won't have any bug, uh, luggage to take with you, for example. But you can go through and yep. choose that point of comparison. Allows people to, I guess, trigger a different way of thinking. But that's perhaps absent from this version, but maybe it's something right. you've picked up subsequently. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, no, that's correct. Uh, we don't, yeah. we don't cur currently do that. Um, yeah. And I'll just show the, the, the second example, Simon. Um, so this time, if we just split um, the risk profiles down the middle, so one to three being our most conservative and four to six being our most aggressive. Um, and I've kept advisor C here and I've just brought in advisor B, um, although advisor A would have had a very similar result. Uh, in this in this example, advisor B, ninety three point seven five percent of their clients came came out in the most three conservative risk profiles. When you compare that to advisor C, only fourteen percent. So conversely, obviously, nearly uh, nearly eighty six percent of advisor C's clients came out four, five, or six. So the three most aggressive. Again, that's double uh, what the average is. So. Uh, Seeing the same types of clients, roughly the same age, and, and getting uh, hugely different results there as well. Yeah, so th this isn't a individual bucket, but a broad skew, if you like, or a bias up or down in the spectrum. And again, you've, do you have theories as to what's causing that? Yeah, unfortunately, we um, look. Uh, uh, we would have it would have been good to be able to risk profile our advisors, and it wasn't possible for a number of reasons, which I won't get into here. But uh, yeah. I, I do have the feeling that uh, the not you know, further to what we said earlier about the advisors influencing the client and, and framing the questions in certain ways uh, that they might have their own biases and uh, advisors. Some advisors are more conservative than others, and some are more aggressive than others. And I, I you know, I've heard advisors say, well, you know. The best long-term return is also is, is always to go and growth assets. That's what everyone should be doing, um, and that's their bias. Uh, and financially, they might be right, but uh, it doesn't always relate to someone's risk profile, though. So I, I get a feeling that they're they're kind of putting their bias on these end results. 
Yeah, and, and that would align. I mean, there's a, there's a, a large scale study out of Canada where they had, I think, from memory, thousands of advisors and tens or possibly hundreds of thousands of clients, and they did have data like the the advisor's risk profile and, and own personal investments because it was, I think, all through the same platform. And then mm-hmm. there was a very strong correlation between an individual client, the other clients from that advisor, and the advisor's risk profile and investments. So it, it did look like the advisor was project, perhaps projecting their own risk profile onto their clients. And you might yeah. say, but, but, but maybe that advisor is just attracting clients that are like them, which... Maybe that was the case, but once you once a client moved from one advisor to the to the to the next, well, actually, then they started looking like that advisors, that new yes. advisors, uh, clients, um, and that advisor as well. So it d- does look like whether it's inadvertent or deliberate, some yeah. level of sort of I guess pushing but influencing in some way. The advisor yeah, influencing influencing I think would be the right right term. And and look, just to add to that, Simon, that most of our most of our advisors don't have ongoing clients, so it's not they're not attracting specific clients. They work for industry super funds, and they've they, they're given the clients to see. So they're not they're not attracting any particular client. They're they're all roughly ending up with a, a you know a random set of clients. Yeah, I think another thing that comes out of that analysis, which is, which is perhaps hidden from um, a lot of the thinking, I think, around risk profiling, which is that in aggregate the tool might look fine, which I think is what you mm. said. You look, yeah. it's some sort of normal distribution. Most people are in the middle somewhere and yeah, it looks better mm. for a higher risk. Younger clients are slightly higher. Mm. All that makes sense. But I mean, people like Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winner, his re- most recent book is all about noise, is focusing mm-hmm. on the fact that there's a lot, of fi- a lot of focus on bias, which we've seen from some of your results as well. But yep. really, we should be focusing on the inconsistency, the noise in these processes, which if we have a process that's not sufficiently, I guess, robust, all of those subjective or sort of, um, I guess, individual sort of nuances of the advisor and how they happen to position or explain a term or interpret mm. results can lead to quite quite sort of strange individual results. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that, that I mean, that that's my intuition as well. That uh, I've sat in on a few interviews and the way... Um, Again, it's the same question set and we give the same guidance to all the advisors, but the way they explain the question uh, or they, the way they explain a, an, a member's question is quite different and, and that, that relate, and relates to different answers from the member. Sure. So, so the data analytics makes it look like maybe there's some things that could be improved. Doesn't look like mm-hmm. a disaster, but it does look like some no. improvement might be possible. Was there anything yeah. else sort of going through your mind as you were thinking about the need to review and update the, the risk profiling tool? Look, there was. Um, as I said, we we give thousands of people uh, thousands of personal advice over over this topic each year, and um, another group of advisors that we license are called we call them limited licensed um, advisors. They sometimes they might just have an appointment just to give which investment option should I be in? Um, and it sounds like if you're a member and you ring up your super fund and say, look, which investment option should I be in? It sounds like a pretty simple question. Um, yet our current process takes on average uh, one hour. One hour uh, once you actually get in front of an advisor to go through the questions, have the backwards and forwards, give the education and it takes an hour to get an answer. Um, now, speaking to members, they just can't believe, <laughs> they can't believe it. They think it might be a 10-minute thing. Um, and then they, they go, well, I don't have an hour. I just, t- just tell me which investment option I should be in. So, um, so one, another one was, yeah, so ha- can we make it a bit more efficient? Does, how can we make the whole process efficient, not just for the, for the member, but for the advisor as well? Because the advisor is explaining the same concepts every time. So... Um, any advisors an expensive resource? Uh, do you want them sitting there <laughs> explaining 10, 15 minutes up front of every meeting what risk and return is, why compounding is important? All, all these are concepts that are very, very important to know and, and members really need to know before they can make a, a good choice. Um, but does that have to be explained manually every single time as well? So that was another thing we thought. Um, and look, I don't know if I, I kind of emphasised it enough, but another reason why we kind of started this whole process was uh, was digital advice. We, we, we're looking to license some digital advice tools and our current process does rely heavily on an advisor explaining concepts. So if an advisor wasn't there, uh, we're not confident that our current risk profile set would give a, 
good, good outcome at the end because the the client just really wouldn't know uh, how to answer some of those questions without some support. So, so that was the the last kind of the last kind of thing we thought about, and and the thing that's kind of driven this whole process urgently is we need a process that can stand up by itself uh, without having to have an advisor involved every single time. So those are the things that we were kind of looking at, um, and then that kind of started us on our journey about what we should be doing going forward. Yeah, okay. And, and presumably you're not the first group of uh, um, sort of advice-related professionals who have thought about improving the risk profiling tools. So, yeah. so others have been yeah. down this track in the past and there are sort of third-party mm-hmm. tools out there. So when you looked around at what was available, what, what were your impressions and how did you sort of think about whether they might be appropriate for what you needed? Yeah, so we, we, we did have a look around the market to see what was there and we we, we wanted it to be able to use for both case scenarios, one to be for an advisor to be able to use with a member, but also for it to be able to be a standalone and digitally used as well. So it had to work in both those settings. Um, and when we had a look around, what we found what was there was a lot of risk profiles, question sets similar to what we already had, um, you know, the whole eight to 10 questions or even more um, and explaining concepts that might be difficult to understand. Um, and we also found risk and return being separated. And when you're going through digital advice, um, if, if there's an advisor there, you, you might be able to pick them up and say, well, you can't, you know, maybe you haven't understood this concept. You can't say you don't want any risk when you want a really high return. Whereas a digital advice tool might let them go through. So you, can, you can't have those kind of questions separated. Um, they have, there has to be a trade-off. So there was still a lot of those questions about that didn't kind of didn't resonate with us and didn't make sense. And there was a lot of jargon and um, mathematical concepts um, that again, we didn't feel suited our member base. Um, we, we don't tend to deal with too many high net worth clients or maybe really highly financial literate clients in a lot of instances. We, we, we deal with everyday super members, mum and dad members that, um, that need to be explained things in clear language. So, so we, we found quite a few issues <laughs> when we went and had a look and nothing that really um, thought, yep, that's, that's going to suit us. Yeah. Okay. So you've started to allude there to some sort of issues with specific questions. Maybe we can sort of mm. dig in, if you don't mind, to yeah. some, even down to the level of the specific words that are used yeah. on the page, uh, if you don't mind, just so we can get a feel for what sort of issues you're encountering and, and why they might cause problems. Yeah, yeah. So there, there was one question um, which maybe a lot of people are familiar with because it's from a, from a well-known tool um, that asks about, what their willingness is to take financial risks and it um, again so it separates risk and return but and then it asks what kind of risk taker they are so you can have extremely low very low low average high very high extremely high so um as i said it it, it doesn't ask about return it just asks about risk mm. and and it was and it started off with compared to others so compared to others so i'm not sure compared to you, Simon, if I'm a big risk taker or not, because uh, I don't know what your risk appetite is. And uh, I'm not sure how the average super fund member knows how they are compared to others, whether they take more risk than others, they probably have no idea. Uh, and then that language about what's the difference between an extremely low and a very low and a low uh, risk taker. So I, I just imagine that a lot of people would answer that question very differently. They might have very similar risk profiles, <laughs> But the way that they interpret that question, that you could get really uh, different kind of results. Yeah, I think there's a great example because it, it links then back to the sort of inconsistency and in the noise that has been added to a risk profiling question or, or, or a process. Now, of course, this isn't just the only question in the in their tool, no. presumably, so that they'll have other sources of information. But looking at this one, so I agree, when you ask people to compare themselves, but the, the fantastic stereotypical example of this is when you ask people how they compare with others on driving ability. And of course, we're all, well, 80% of us or something are above <laughs> yeah. average drivers, which is not to say that we all think that we're all above average at everything. So you ask people about public speaking, for example, and we tend to think that we're below average public speakers. Mm-hmm. It's a similar sort of reason that you sort of reflect on your own aptitudes and feelings. I feel, it feels easy and comfortable for me to drive, therefore I must be above average. It feels difficult and uncomfortable and a bit anxiety provoking for me to be on stage in front of a large crowd. Therefore, I must be below average. 
But in both cases, we've failed to reflect adequately on what other people uh, think and feel about in a similar situation. So I think we're sort of asking yeah. the member in those cases to do the hard job that we need to do, which is to compare yeah. them with others and asking them to do it for us, which, <laughs> yes. of course, would be very difficult. Very difficult, uh, almost impossible, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, in your case, you'd, you'd probably be in the best position when you're comparing with me. At least at least you've looked at the data. <laughs> <laughs> but we can't obviously anticipate the members will have done the same same yeah. there as well. And the um, you also mentioned the, the low and the very low. Um, mm. for example so i think that's a that's another great example because that's there's a there's a problem as you pointed out with jargon so we don't want to put an irr or some terminology they haven't heard in the in the question i think most people sort of understand that that's that's problematic but in this case the words low and very low they're in common usage aren't they yeah but the problem there of course and there's some good research around this uh, which is that they can be very different probabilistic sort of interpretations so one of my favorite examples here was the word might. I know we've talked about this uh, previously, yeah. but I mean, I might be late for a meeting versus I'm, I might win the lotto. The, the context <laughs> yes. there makes a big difference. So what, what I think of when you use that term might be quite different from what you intended. My might mm -hmm. be late for the meeting, which might be 90%, and the might win the lotto, which is 0.001%, it could end up with very different interpretations. So I think it's Another example of sort of mm. perhaps the inadvertent noise. Maybe this is not advisors deliberately biasing yeah. by influencing them into a bucket, but it's just the advisor's got a different interpretation from the client. The client's got a different interpretation from the person who created the risk profiling tool. And hey, presto, we end up with different answers. Yeah, absolutely. And I can see a lot of people answering that question, as I said, very differently. Yeah. Okay. That was a, a great example. What, um, what others did you come across? Uh, look, there was another example uh, which was quite interesting. We found where, where there was a uh, you, you had to make a um, uh, a choice between losing money and gaining money, uh, but they were they were linked. So um, it, it, there was a there was an amount of money you could you could decide. Okay, well, I'm gonna uh, I'm willing to risk this amount of money to make X amount of money, um, and that was quite interesting. Um, because it was an interactive kind of slider, so uh, so it would have worked really well digitally, um, and and it had risk and return combined. So so I thought it was quite interesting and and uh, a good way of looking at it. However, uh, some of the numbers yeah were quite kind of they were they were a little bit abstract, and they were asking people to kind of weigh up the odds in terms of is this a good bet or not a good bet because there's a number of different rounds and, and the odds change depending on which round you're in so the, it was it was almost can these can these people you know can you can your member or can the person doing this risk profile can they calculate the the odds rationally and um, are these amounts really meaningful to the person with a depending on what they had in their super balance as well so but do they have uh, a so conceptually so, so could they? Sorry to interrupt. Could could they yeah. put in? We know what I've got fifty thousand dollars in super, or I've got five hundred thousand, and make the numbers appropriate for me, or was it just a set figure in that case? It was it was just a set figure. Uh, well, it was a set figure, but as you as you moved your your your, your slider, that the the amount that gained or lost would be up or down. Um, so it didn't really matter what your starting balance was. It was so you could have actually moved the slider in theory i suppose to more than money than more than you actually had in your super fund hmm. um it wasn't wasn't directly linked to anyone's balance or anything like that so if it's if if i said i'm willing to lose $5000 for example mm -hmm. to make 10 yep. would you interpret that to mean i've got a high risk profile or, or would you interpret that to mean well actually simon's got half a million dollars in his super anyway and so $5,000 is what he's up and down every day. So it doesn't really matter. To, is that, how would you interpret the results there? Yes. Well, I think the, inter the results are supposed to be interpreted the former. It's, 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 re it's relating directly to your risk profile in terms of you're willing to take on twice as much, uh, yeah, to, to gain twice as much to, to lose half as much. That, that's the, uh, the idea behind it. But as you said, those, those amounts might not be relevant. You know, someone with a very large balance yeah, um, they, they might be willing to take more risk because they've got a larger risk capacity and that, those amounts don't mean as much to them. So um, that wasn't really considered by the tool. Yeah. And did, did, the, did the tool, I guess, um, allow the user to think about the implications of, the say, if it's a $50,000 loss, 
Does that mean mm-hmm. I've got less money in retirement? Does that mean I've lost it next year out of my super? But to be honest, I'm not going to touch my super for 40 years, so it doesn't matter. Does that mean I can't pay the mortgage? What does it? Was there sort of a tangible connection between these numbers and the the, the, the client's reality or not? Not really. No, there was kind of, they're all just in isolation. So there were kind of six different mathematical models. Um, um, and yeah, the, the, the mathematical models were really designed to come up with your risk profile, how much, you know, how much risk you're willing to take. Um, and that's yeah. really in, in kind of isolation to anything else. It does sound a lot like actually what some of those old Nobel Prize winners have won Nobel Prizes mm-hmm. for. So look at Daniel uh, Kahneman and um, his partner in crime, Traversky, although he died yeah. before he would have won the Nobel Prize as well. But mm-hmm. a lot of their work was in laboratory with these sorts of relatively abstract type of mathematical um, trade-offs. And that's how we've got things like loss aversion. But yeah. the question, I guess, has always been, well, how, how much are they relevant for different contextual circumstances outside of the laboratory setting of a relatively abstract question. Yeah, so that was yeah one of our concerns in terms of yeah having those having those tools just kind of sitting there and can can someone really make a a, a rational or and also a, a a judgment when maybe their emotions might be taking over when the markets are crashing and you know how, how do they really know what they would do in that mm. instance? Yeah, do you have another example? Uh, another example. Uh, was was from an online risk profile that we were, that we were having a look at. Um, so again, you could you could a, um, answer all the questions uh, directly online. And there was a question about um, how much risk you wanted to take, uh, how much um, return that you wanted, how long you wanted to invest for. So they're all kind of separate questions, and you might be answering them. At the let's say at the far right end at the at the most aggressive option. So yes, I want to take, um, I'm willing to take high risk. I'm willing, I want a really high return, and I'm going to be investing for a very long period. So they always, I mean, you know, they they, you think that would point you to a, a high risk investor. But there was another question about inflation, um, and it kind of just kind of kind of didn't fit in with the other questions. But it was, yeah, are you concerned with inflation? So. Um, now, if you weren't really concerned with inflation, you just wanted a high risk, high return, and you just put a, put low or medium or something like that in for that inflation question, it would kind of skew your results down and you wouldn't get a high risk result. You would get something slightly less than high risk, even though it was fairly clear that this member is a high risk type of uh, yeah. type of investor. Uh, because they weren't concerned or didn't understand inflation, they might not have answered that question Yes, I'm really concerned about inflation, um, yeah. and then it would skew the whole risk profiling result. So uh, they got a they got a result less than really what they should have got. So the the mechanics, I guess, have sort of implicitly assumed the mechanics of how the risk profiling tool is getting to result have sort of implicitly assumed that if you want a high return, that you must join the dots between I need a high yeah. return, and that means I'm going to be concerned about exceeding inflation because that's what a high return will do. If I haven't mm. joined those dots. Then again, I've added a bit of noise into the process, and I haven't really got what I thought I was getting. Is that, is that what's that, happening? That's right. Yeah. So I mean, we I think we know it's important to keep up with inflation, um, and and part of our current process, we you know, we we might even talk to our clients about why it's important to get a return above inflation, and and um, keeping your you know keeping your purchasing power, etc., etc., etc. That that might be a reason why you want a high return, uh, but explaining the concept of inflation. We've found is very hard, uh, very hard to members, and um, incorporating it into a, a risk profile question is also very hard. And, and you know, when we reflected on it, it's probably might not be the best thing to do. And then when we looked at it, this question, yeah, it's just introducing an extra concept that has really got nothing to do with this client's risk profile. Um, and, and as you said, use, use use the word noise. It's just creating extra noise and extra confusion. And if someone doesn't understand it, then um, it's going to yeah. skew the results. Yeah. Again, I don't. I don't think you're the only ones who've come across this problem because there's there's a thing called the money illusion where people don't tend to um, um, to incorporate uh, inflation in the way they they think 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 through financial choices. There's the problem with compounding relationships. So inflation this year might be okay. I can oh yeah, it's going to be prices will be four and a half percent higher next year, for example. But in thirty years' time, when I have to start comp- mm. compound over that period of time, t- people tend to be terrible at that. And 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 yeah. even there was an example from. Um, President of the US the other day that I uh, did make mention or did did note where he seemed to think that the fact that inflation was falling so it's gone from six to four or 
some some number in the US, I forget what it was, he assumed that that meant prices were actually falling rather than actually going up. At a, at <laughs> Just a, at not a going up as fast. Yeah. Yeah. So, so <laughs> yeah. Well, if, I mean, if our case studies come from the White House over in the US or elsewhere, I guess it's it's uh, it's diluting the the value from the sound of it of the other questions which might have more validity for the client about what actually is in their needs. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And inflation is a reason why you might um, need to go for higher returns, but it's not a, uh, a <laughs> am I, should I be keeping, or do I want to keep up with inflation is not really a, a good risk profile question we found. Yeah, no, no fair enough. Yeah. Um, okay, so would it be fair then to say that the questions that you've encountered are, um, I was going to say that perhaps there's, it's difficult to write them, isn't it? It's easy to poke holes in yep. a, a lot of them. But would the conclusion be, well, at least we can improve upon some of them or eliminate the bad ones? Or what was the sort of broad conclusion you drew from all that analysis? No, well, that's right. It was very easy to, once you started, it was very easy to pick holes in risk profiling questions. That was the easy part. Um, and and once, you, once you're aware of all these issues, then it's hard not to see them. So... Uh, so, so we we did have a look at we did have a look at a whole bunch of risk profiles, and we've seen a whole bunch of risk profiling questions. Um, and now we, I think, we had a lot better of idea what to avoid. So mm. um, it's not easy to coming up with some, something that's really really good, um, but that's what we thought we would do. We'd come up with our own purpose built risk profiler uh, mm. to take into account some of the latest uh, thinking in relation to risk profiling to try and avoid. Avoid these mistakes where possible. I think that's the, the biggest thing. Let's try and avoid what we know is not going to work or what doesn't work. Um, and obviously we approached yourself, Simon, to help out as well with some behavioural finance aspects and thinking in terms of our risk profiling. So that's that's the approach that we decided to take. Yeah. I must admit one of my reflections on it is that whilst there's no perfect risk profiling question or process, you, you could say, well, we know when we ask clients about risk, there's going to be biases and distortions in the way they think about it if we talk about volatility. And there's going to be mm-hmm. biases and distortions if we think about the, or talk about the probability of loss or the quantum of loss, or if we put it in dollar terms. So maybe we can just do it four ways and we can start to, I was going to say triangulate, but sort of quadrilaterate <laughs> the, yeah. the responses so that we've sort of covered our bases and tried to reduce the noise through some sort of averaging mm. of multiple processes that allow you to hone in yeah. uh, on, on the result. Yeah, no, that's right. Yes, we we, yeah, we wanted to try and use simple language and, and, and approach it from different angles to and try and make it real and, and bring it back into real terms and real language for someone to understand. Sure. So perhaps on that note, if you don't mind, if you can give us a quick demo, that would be fantastic to see where you've landed. Yes. As I said to you earlier, Simon, we wanted uh, – we wanted to replace that big, long advisor education conversation, which an advisor does manually every single time, uh, with a video that explains things consistently um, in, a, in a manner that um, hopefully a member can understand. So we want the member to understand the key concepts before they start answering any type of question. So that was just kind of the prelude about before I play this video, this video we're going to make members watch before they can uh, then choose an appropriate risk profile. So I'll, uh, I'll play the video for you first. Thank you. It's time to choose an investment option. When deciding, ask yourself, how do I feel about risk? How much risk am I willing to take in order to achieve a higher return? All investments carry some risk. One way to measure investment risk is how certain are the investment returns you will receive and the potential for short-term drops in the amount you have invested. Typically, the bumpier the ride, also known as volatility, the higher the expected return. Higher risk options have the potential for higher returns. That could mean a larger balance for you and subsequently a higher retirement income. However, they're also more vulnerable to market ups and downs. This means you may not be able to protect your savings from losses especially in the short term. Lower risk options are usually more stable, so you won't have to worry about big rises and falls in your investment quite so much. Their return potential is relatively limited, 
So depending on the amount of money invested, the risk is your balance may not be high enough to meet your financial needs. It's also important to consider the value of compounding returns. This occurs when positive returns are added to your initial amount. Over time, this compounding effect can significantly increase the value of the investment. Even small differences in your yearly return, when compounded, could make a very large difference to your end balance over long periods. When investing for the long term, it's important to then focus on long-term returns and not short-term ups and downs, which will happen from time to time. It's a trade-off. How much risk are you comfortable with versus how high of a return would you like to achieve? If you're worried about your balance going down in value, especially over short periods, choose a lower risk, lower return portfolio. If you're comfortable with a bumpy short-term ride and willing to take some risk to achieve a higher return, go ahead and choose a higher risk, higher return portfolio. Want to play it somewhat safe but still achieve a reasonable return? Then pick a portfolio somewhere in the middle. There is no right or wrong answer. Select an approach that suits you. The choice is yours. Okay, so that was the uh, that was the initial video, Simon. I'm not sure if you've got any comments about that. Yeah, so I'd, I'd just say for anyone listening to the podcast version, um, I think you've probably picked up most of the uh, content there on the audio. You would just missed a few little icons of charts with arrows and and uh, and, yep. and the like. So I, I think you probably would get the uh, the main gist of it. But I mean, my reflections on it, I guess it's picked up a few of the things that you've already mentioned. So you've talked about risk, or the video has talked about risk in a number of different ways. It's talked about compounding mm -hmm. returns and the fact that we're going to have over a long period of time that. that perhaps you're going to get more than you might expect because if you're thinking about in linear terms, we didn't use that language, of course, but that's sort of, I guess, naturally mm -hmm. how people tend to, to think, then perhaps you're going to underestimate the impact or the benefits of moving off. So I guess you've picked up the big ticket issues. It only went for, what, two and a half minutes or so, didn't it? Yep. Yeah. You wanted to touch on those key points. I mean, risk was a, a key one because what is risk? I mean, there's a lot of, that's the other thing we found with the risk profile questions. They all ask you about risk, but they never actually tell you what risk is. Um, so we wanted to try and explain a little bit about risk because you talk to people, you talk to a member about risk and they think it's the risk of losing all your money. Mm. Um, um, so we wanted to put that in context and, and compounding was the other important one as well, be, uh, which, which I'll get to in a little bit more when we, when we actually explain what the, what the risk profiler is. So it, it takes you to this screen. There is a second optional video that someone can watch. It just tells them how to use the risk profiler. Instead of playing that, maybe I'll just talk you through it if you like, Simon. Sounds good. Yep. So when, when someone comes into the risk profiler, they can um, the video at the video will explain it. You can you can put in your uh, your, your superannuation or portfolio balance, um, so you make it more relevant to yourself. Mm -hmm. um, we've got six six different risk profiles. So um, so the underlying end results of those risk profiles haven't changed from what we've always had. Um, now we've just labelled them A to F. Um, now we we did have a conversation about this, Simon, about you know, what what should we call the risk profiles and what should we label them? But we we ended up we didn't want to influence someone by no, by naming certain portfolios, so we've just stuck with A to F. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it starts off down here towards portfolio E because uh, most default funds uh, tend to have a quite a high allocation to growth assets. So this will this will be. Um, similar to where they're starting off with. So again, we had that conversation, should we be starting off somewhere in the middle? Should we be starting off over on the left-hand side? Where should we be starting? But uh, we're kind of starting it close to where someone's default super fund is. Um, and then for each of the uh, each of the different options, you've got a you've got a graph and a table down the below, which I'll, I'll go over. Um, and then the whatever's highlighted, um, as you change, as you change here, it'll it, it'll change your your expected long-term balance and each description talks about what your average average annual return will be um, and how often you can expect a negative return um, and then it's kind of these four I think these are the four kind of key points that people will be looking at so your average annual return your compounded return over 15 years and we wanted to put this in because uh, compounding is so important um, and we've, we've got a couple of things on your risk about how often and how deep a risk 
return would be. So we wanted to balance that out with kind of two positives and two negatives. Um, and if you only look at a one-year positive return, people might be thinking, well, why should I go for an extra 0.3% return when I've got all this extra risk? But of course, when you compound that over 15 years, then maybe people can realise, oh, okay, well, you know, over one year, taking a bit of extra risk doesn't really help me, but over 15 years, it's going to make a really big difference. So, um, so that's why we thought not just the one-year return, but the 15-year return was important to show as well. Yeah, so um, this to me is an example of that triangulation we sort of spoke about. Mm -hmm. So you've got two versions of risk, depending on whether you're talking about the frequency or the size of loss. You've got two versions of return, whether it's annual or compounded. You've also got numbers, which in this case are, percentage, are mostly presented here as percentages, but you've also got the dollars in the chart where you put the actual dollar amount in, and you've yep. got figures and you've got a graphical representation of the figures as well. So it's, it's effectively, you've just talked about risk and return, but you've done so already in about six different ways. Yes. Yeah, that's right. We really tried to hammer because really that's what it's all about. It's about risk return trade-off at the end of the day. That's what your risk profile is. Um, and, and the table and the graph are linked. So it doesn't matter whether you, you go here, press C and as you can see, then C updates here. If you go back here, back to E, the table update. So uh, one thing a little bit different about our, our risk profiler is it kind of gets you to choose something upfront. So we've given you all this information. We've given you a bit of education at the start. Then you can play around with it and make your choice. Um, and, and that's, a, I suppose, the main part of it. But then after you've made your choice uh, and you're comfortable with your choice, then we want to play back to you um, some challenge questions. Uh, that's what we call them, calling them internally, just to challenge you to make sure that you are making an informed decision um, and, and you are comfortable with your choice. Because the other thing what we found is, uh, you know, if markets go down, um, people come back into us and go, oh, look, I told my advisor I didn't want to take that much risk. I don't know why they put me in this portfolio and they put a complaint in. Um, and I, I mean, it's, it's obvious why they're complaining because they're not happy that the market's gone down. But the other reason we think it is is because people haven't really kind of owned owned their the whole pro, the risk profiling process. As I said earlier, they you, you get a you get eight questions and you get a you get a surprise result at the end, and that's you're told that's your risk profile. Whereas if you're playing around with it, you're, you're much more likely here. You have to, we're forcing you to make a choice between risk and return. You're kind of owning it in a way. Um, and that's why we want to challenge you. So you've set something up front and then we challenge you rather than get to the end and that's your result. So you've sort of opened the black box and said, no, no, there's no black box now. You have to make the black boxes in your own mind now, I guess. Yes. You've got <laughs> to think about it yourself and come up with your own choice. But you're, you're giving them some challenge or some, I guess, testing their thinking to make sure it hasn't just been a, a whimsical choice or an, a, an error of judgment or something. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So, so once they've, uh, they've landed on something, then um, we ask them to continue and, and we, uh, we ask, we, we've called them here confirming your choice. So, you know, we, as I said to you, it's uh, kind of their challenge questions, but um, confirming your choice is what we've called it to the member. And there's four, Generally, four questions, unless you're uh, coming out of portfolio A or portfolio F. If you're at either extreme, there might only be two challenge questions. But what we want to do for anyone in the four middle risk profiles is just to ask them some questions to make sure that they are comfortable, that they have thought about uh, it from different angles. Uh, and so we'll, we'll ask a couple about do you want to take on a bit of extra risk or do you, uh, sorry, return, or do you want to dial down your risk a little bit more? So. So the first one is, can you take on more risk to get a better return? And it kind of prompts them to say, a higher balance could provide you with a higher income each year in retirement, allow you to go on more holidays. So have you thought about what really is the purpose of getting a higher return? Um, it's not just a not just a number, but it could mean you're leading a better retirement, going on more holidays or whatever you want to do in retirement. So um, did you want to go for that extra return or are you comfortable sticking with uh, what you've said up front? So, yeah. And so not only are you sort of, I guess, reframing it in a way that brings that sort of tangible, personally relevant angle to it, but you're also mm -hmm. overcoming to some extent, at least that challenge of comparing this bucket with a thing next to it. In this case, mm -hmm. it's the thing next to it, one above, isn't it? But you can yes, do the same the thing above. on the one down, which I guess that might very well have changed the results for that advisor A or C or whatever it was that you showed us up front where you had 83% in one bucket. 
did they ever get this choice? They, they never did, did they? No, that's right. They never they never had that direct comparison at the end with the one either side. So, so if they go no, uh, it would take them back to the the front screen, and then they can play around. Uh, obviously, it's it's prompting them here to have a look at portfolio F. So they maybe they want to go in and have a little bit more about look at portfolio F and what the risk return trade off there is, or they can go no no, I am happy with what my choice is. Um, and now we we start talking about um, losses now. So. Um, if you haven't not suffered a loss before, you may not realise how this feels. After seeing news headlines or watching your balance fall in value, it's not unusual to feel anxious and to want to switch to a safer investment option. Are you sure you're willing to accept the risk that your balance may reduce by 25% over a 20-month, over every 12-month period in comparison, portfolio D is only expected to fall by 20%. Now, in this example, it's not a huge difference, 25 to 20. In some of the other examples, it's a lot greater, um, you know, 20 to 10 and, and 10 to 0, that type of thing. Um, but again, it's now prompting them to have a look at it. Um, now, we talked about this when we came up with this question. We we're talking about, well, could we use a real-life example about the GFC when, when things were really going terrible? But um, of course, not everyone lived through the GFC. There were, <laughs> a lot of the younger younger investors weren't weren't investing at that time. So um, we just tried to put them in the moment as much as possible because we know that if markets are falling, it's going to be on the news, it's going to be online, and it's going to be everywhere. So trying to trying to put them in that position. Yeah, and another point I think you've just made there is that the the gaps between your buckets, the A, B, C, D, E, F, they're all, not all constant gaps are no. there? some are bigger than others so it might be more meaningful for someone to jump up or down a bucket from a to b yes. or from b to that sort of thing where are the yeah, big jumps yeah. the big jumps are, are moving from the from the uh from the most conservative options a to b is a big jump because a is pretty much all cash so even taking on a, a, a little bit of risk and a little bit of growth assets makes a huge difference. And and B to C is quite a, a big jump as well. But as you're getting further up the, the risk return, you're taking on more growth assets. Um, the, 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 the returns are less. So the, um, the, 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 additional, the additional return is a little bit less. So you're not making as a, a bigger headway. So it's the, the yeah. biggest jumps are moving from the most conservatives up just a slight notch. Yeah, okay. So in this case, we've just tested whether they want to go from E to F up, and now we've tested E to D down, and what yep. comes after that. So I've, I've just said, yes, it seems fine. I'm happy that, happy that. Um, move on to question three. Yes. So question three then is just about um, how often can you accept these negative returns? And I've talked about risk bands before, which is what uh, all the super funds have to uh, abide by, and that's uh, that they have to measure their portfolios and, and this is a, a big part of how they measure their portfolios is how often um, given their modelling that they'll expect negative returns. So um, very relevant to our risk profiling and our results. So we wanted to put something in about well, every four to five years, you're going to be expecting a negative return. And, and um, as we've said here in the question, in the future, the economy will have recessions, pandemics, wars and other events that will affect your portfolio. Uh, and as the portfolio is linked to the economy, are you comfortable that your portfolio will suffer multiple periods of negative returns where your balance goes backwards? So we wanted to say a negative return doesn't mean just a negative return. Your balance is actually going to go backwards because some people don't make that connection as well. Yeah. Um, and as an example, portfolio D uh, would suffer less years of going backwards. Um, did you want to look at that one? Yeah. Uh, so again, another, but, another one about the uh, the risk. Yeah. And, and also, as you pointed out, you've also made a connection between this abstract thing of a portfolio going down 20%, which is very easy for me to say, that's fine. That sounds like a great opportunity for me to invest yes. again. But yeah. actually, in reality, there'll be a pandemic and we'll all be locked in our houses and you'll be thinking the world's going to end. Would yes. you be happy? <laughs> so e even if I didn't live through the GFC, at least you're trying to put a, like that there's a narrative associated with this that's going to make you feel like, no, it's a terrible time to invest and you won't. You won't be you're actually maybe feeling like selling rather than maintaining or investing more at that stage. Absolutely. I remember during the GFC, some people were worried they'd go to the uh, the ATM and money wouldn't come out. I mean, everyone, you know, it just sounds funny now, but everyone was just completely panicked and that um, and trying to get someone into that mindset is what we're trying to do in these yeah. in these questions. And no doubt imperfectly, but it's better than nothing, I guess. Yes. Yep. Um, and so we've had one question about taking on extra um, risk and then two about extra, uh, sorry, one question about getting a better return, then two questions about risk, and then we come back and ask one final question about um, are you sure you don't want to go um, for a bit extra return? So, again, just 
prompting them to have a look at the next one up, Portfolio F. So this one is looking back in 15 years, would you regret you didn't choose a portfolio with higher returns? You might compare your portfolio uh, to friends' portfolios and think about what you've been able to do with the additional funds in retirement. So again, that was um, a fairly common scenario where, where you might compare your portfolio, how it's going to everyone else's. Um, are you going to have that regret if markets are flying uh, and other people are saying they're they're getting better returns and going to have more money in retirement. Um, are you going to regret that if you if you didn't uh, take on that additional risk? Yeah. So you brought in the social element here. You've also got the um, dollars, so that you've converted the dollars in, so the percentages into into dollars to make it more tangible. And the other thing in this one is that it's a it's a reflection. You've sort of asked them to project themselves forward and to reflect back. Which then, mm. you know, from the psychology, you end up sort of thinking differently depending on whether you're thinking prospectively or, or, or retrospectively. Um, so it's again, I guess it's another way of asking them to triangulate around a response by sort of thinking about it in different ways. Yes, that's right. So, uh, so then we kind of just play back, play back the results. Um, so this is what this is kind of what happens now, um, but but we've just taken a different way to get to it. So. It, it, you get to the final screen and it's saying, okay, you, you, this is your final chance. You're selecting portfolio E and this is what it means. You're going to, you accept, you're prepared for losses of 15 to 25% on average once every four to five years. Uh, you don't want to, you don't want to go up and take any more risk. Um, and you want a portfolio and it kind of then just brings it back to a, a growth defensive mix as well. So it kind of plays back everything to them in a summary and they've got one final chance to go, okay, you know what, that doesn't sound like me now. I want to go back and retake it, retake the whole thing again, which they can. Um, and it just doesn't let them out until, they, until they've made that risk and return. When I say it doesn't let them out, of course, there's going to be options to go speak to an advisor, um, yeah. but they can't, <laughs> they can't, uh, they can't, finish the risk profiler without making that trade-off between risk and return and then having the final result played back to them and them agreeing that, yep, this one is me. So we, we're we hoping that that leads them to owning it a lot more and having less you know, having less confusion and less um, complaints when, when, when markets, um, in it, you know, as they will, they'll go down or they'll go down at some point. Yeah. Um, I'd love to hear the feedback you've received. I mean, my initial impression of this would be a compliance person would love this. If you ever received a complaint, you just print out all these screens that the, the, the client has <laughs> clicked on, including this one, if they ever lost any money. So keen to hear what, what sort of feedback you've got from the, perhaps the legal compliance people, advisors or any clients that you've tested it with so far. Yeah. So the, I think, uh, firstly, the advisors, the advisors, um, yeah, once we've started pointing out all the current issues with the with the current risk profiling, um, they'll be very eager to to try something different, um, and they can um, they can see the they can see the benefits in this, and they can see the time savings in this, um, and then they can concentrate on what they do, which is um, you know the strategies and, and putting things into the big pictures, help clients setting goals and and so forth. So, so by and large, the advisors. Uh, are on board. I mean, they've always going to have some kind of feedback about, oh, maybe you can tweak this a little bit here or tweak it a little bit there, or could we have a different kind of graph for when someone's retiring or, or whatever the case may be. And there's going to be some good suggestions uh, that hopefully you know, we can incorporate down the track. Uh, but by and large, the, it's, been, it's been very positive. Uh, and, and the risk and compliance team are, uh, have been, again, pretty supportive of the whole process and what it's trying to achieve and, um, and how... Um, it, it does take that advisor subjectivity out of it. So it, it perhaps makes the whole process a little bit easier for them as well. Yeah, fantastic. So, so where are you up to then? You've obviously got some feedback. Is it rolling out now in pilot mode? Where, where are you up to? Uh, we're just about to, to start the pilot mode. I mean, there's been um, a few things to iron out before the pilot mode. I mean, we've got a few different scenarios that we wanted to run. We want to run uh, that we want the member to do it maybe in front of an advisor. And we also want the member to do it not with the advisor, so maybe do it before they come in. Uh, and then the advisor can just ask, oh, how did you go with that? Do you think, have you got any questions or are you comfortable with where you landed? So maybe having a couple of different approaches to our trial um, to see if that gives us any different any different results. We're hoping it doesn't. We're hoping it, it kind of stands stands by, its, by itself, but uh, it'll be interesting to see that. So we're just, we're just starting the trial now. Fantastic. Okay. Um, well, I think that's, well, 
probably we've gone over our two and a half minutes that we said was ideal for a for a short video. But uh, yeah. that said, perhaps we can wrap it up now, uh, if you don't mind. But I'm sure mm -hmm. people will be interested in uh, getting further information for, the, for those who are. What's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, thanks, Simon. Yeah, so you can uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn. That's probably the uh, the easiest way. But also, um, you can contact us uh, at Industry Fund Services, and I'll, I'll just, uh, if it's okay, I'll bring up uh, a slide with my contact details. So, and if you wanted to email me, it's at ifsadvicesolutions at ifs.net.au, and our website is ifs.net.au. So, um, so you can either send me an email or contact me. Uh, via LinkedIn. Fantastic. And similarly, for those who are interested in having a chat to me about some of the sort of behavioral psychological issues associated with risk profiling, I love this stuff. It's I think it's awesome. Um, probably LinkedIn is the best way to get in touch with me, Simon Russell, Behavioral Finance Australia. And on that note, I think we'll wrap up. Thank you very much for your time, Craig. Great. Thanks, Simon. It was great. Uh, great to have a chat.